Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE president. Today's conversation is with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics, the topic, Spiritual Formation for Public Life. Today's conversation is brought to you by OneShare Health. Their medical cost-sharing programs are affordable and flexible to meet a variety of lifestyle and budgetary needs. With industry-leading membership programs and an unparalleled member experience, OneShare Health continues to grow their nationwide family. They want their members to start leading healthier, joyful lives and offer three affordable medical cost-sharing programs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit OneShareHealth.com for details. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Caitlin Chess, author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Caitlin also writes about Christianity, spiritual life, faith and culture at Christ and Pop Culture, and has recently published articles in Christianity Today, The New York Times, Fathom Magazine, Relevant Sojourners, and the Christian Research Journal. She's received her bachelor's degree in history from Liberty University and is pursuing a master's degree in theological studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. Caitlin previously worked in young adult ministry at Grace Bible Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for joining us today, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Caitlin, from your bio, it's clear that you have feet in both the church ministry world and history, politics and culture, and that that's not always a, a common combo. How, how have these interests developed in your life? Yeah, so I went to college thinking I was preparing to go to law school and being really excited about that. I'd wanted to do that, you know, most of my time growing up and loved my history degree. I was on the debate team in college. I loved that. Um, but through a really kind of strange uh, series of events in college, really felt like God was just calling me to go to seminary. And so went to seminary right after college and thought, okay, I'm leaving behind all those other interests, my interest in politics and law and history. And then pretty quickly upon starting seminary, I started right in the midst of the 2016 election. I just saw so clearly in my classes and my conversations with fellow students and professors that those were conversations that needed to happen across disciplines and that my background actually could be a service to the church to continue thinking and learning and writing about both faith and politics and, and seeing how lost many of us were, you know, so we're sitting in our classes, the elections happening, and we're realizing that, you know, the curriculum that we have is great, but there's not a lot of attention paid to how we should think about politics, how we should talk about it. The history that we inherited was kind of either full kind of engagement in a way that might've been even sort of idolatrous, that it was to be a Christian is to be a Republican and to, you know, hold all of these particular political positions, or it was to just not be involved. And a lot of the people that I saw were like, let's just not be involved. And I wanted to kind of continue learning and thinking more about how we could be involved, but be involved really faithfully in a way that wasn't always partisan, but that was just trying to, to be as faithful as we could in whatever context we were in. So some of this comes out of the narrative that you've just shared with us, but you've also mentioned that you see politics and theology as two sides of the same coin. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, sometimes we separate those things out pretty sharply. And I think some of it comes from our divide between the sacred and the secular or between our kind of religious lives and the rest of our lives. 
And both theology and politics are trying to answer questions about how we forge a common life together, that there's things about what it means to be human, what it means to live in a community, what our ultimate end is, you know, what does that kind of flourishing community look like? And so trying to think about those conversations together became really important to me because I was sitting in classes where we talked about those kinds of questions about what it means to be human, what it means to live in a community. And I was used to answering those questions in a political context or a historical context. And I thought we need to make sure those conversations are happening together. Hmm. A lot of this is arising, uh, not only from what you see just generally around you, but your own personal narrative, your own life experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's an aspect of your life experience that I want to come back to. Um, so your father served in the military and you moved around a lot. This is part of the story that you've written about, spoken on. Mm -hmm. and, and your mom was a missionary kid. So how did these influences uh, form your understanding of national identity of Christian identity. Yeah, it's a strange combination because on one hand, you know, I grew up, we lived in military bases sometimes, we were around military ceremonies, and there can be a kind of fusing of you know, Christian uh, identity and national identity and kind of military identity. You know, we would go to a chapel on a Sunday morning that's on a military base and a chaplain who's part of the military gives a sermon. And there would be moments when that was really beautiful and faithful. And then there would be moments where it was sort of articulated, like there would never be any tension between those identities. And it became pretty clear that there could be moments. And some of that became clear because my mom grew up in a bunch of different countries overseas. Her two of her sisters still are missionaries today. And so some of that fusing of identity doesn't make sense at all when you realize, you know, Christians all across the world don't have that same kind of fusing of identity. And how do I, as a believer, recognize that I have a special kind of relationship to my country because this is where God has planted me and I want to be faithful to serve in this context. And yet my primary identity and loyalty is to the global people of God. And so it can't just be so fused in the way sometimes it was. And so I'm so thankful to my parents, both for their two different backgrounds and kind of helping me see that, but also for both of them coming from really different backgrounds and trying so hard to be faithful in their context that neither of them would say to be a Christian is to be an American or to be a really good American. You know, they would both say sometimes those identities of American and Christian bump up against each other. And we need to be making sure that the way we live our lives, one of those identities, the Christian one always wins out, even when they kind of bump up against each other. Hmm. I'm really intrigued by uh, your mother's experience. You've mentioned just in this conversation how um, connections are different in different parts of the world. Can you, can you give us a, a little bit more on that? What, what did you learn from your mother in this regard? Yeah, I mean, one of those things was just the fact that she kind of grew up as a third culture kid. She, she didn't feel quite the same level of association with being an American because she didn't grow up here. But also the fact that for her, the church didn't have the same sense of American as it did for me. You know, every church I grew up in wasn't church in America, and a lot of them were churches on bases. But for her, she saw in different cultures, I mean, she, she kind of moved around a lot too in a different, you know, across countries instead of across states like I did. And she saw different expressions of the faith that made sense in different cultural contexts. And they were all good. And, you know, she could see her parents serving people in a way that wasn't just, you know, to be a Christian is to be an American. So you should become more like us, but trying to find ways in particular contexts to describe the gospel, to, you know, show what the church has historically done, but allow for cultural creativity and, and the beauty of all of this diversity that God has made. And so hearing stories from her growing up, but also just knowing that as she lives her life as an American today, she doesn't feel maybe the way that someone who grew up here, the way that I could have been tempted to of just 
you know, to be a Christian is to be an American. And the things that make me an American are just as important as the things that make me a Christian. She couldn't really have that kind of identity. And it was helpful to see that growing up and to see, okay, there's a way to love your country and care about the people in your immediate community and serve them specifically and not feel like that identity has to be foremost or that it has to be fused in the way that a lot Mm. of Christians do. Mm. Part of your work in your book and in things that you're writing about, speaking about is um, the formation of identity, uh, but the spiritual formation of identity, not simply the political formation of our Mm -hmm. identity or cultural formation of our identity. And evangelical churches uh, across denominations uh, in various traditions care a lot about spiritual formation, although the term spiritual formation may not be used in you know, various traditions. Uh, how, How do you define spiritual formation? Yeah, I kind of wanted in the book to give it a really broad definition because sometimes I think we hear that word, especially, you know, me and my fellow students in seminary, we hear that word and we think spiritual disciplines or the corporate worship of the church. And those things are part of what constitutes spiritual formation. But the way I defined it in the book was just anything that is kind of a repetitive, um, you know, something kind of ritualistic that we do continually that imparts a larger story into us. And for some of us, that word ritual could kind of freak us out, but it doesn't mean anything, you know, superstitious. It just means something we do repeatedly with our bodies that teaches us some larger story. So I use the word liturgy and the word spiritual formation kind of interchangeably at some points, just to get us to broaden out our understanding instead of just thinking about spiritual disciplines, which are good gifts that the community of faith have given us over time, um, or the corporate worship of the church, which is good and beautiful, but instead to think a little more broadly, because it helps us see how things are forming us in places we might not realize, you know, are there other areas of my life where I'm doing something repeated and embodied that tells me a larger story about the world. And I might not be sitting down to read my Bible to get that formation. I might be picking up the newspaper or listening to a podcast or choosing the grocery store or the school my kids go to. There could be other repeated things that are forming me in really deeper ways than we might realize, which is why I want to keep the word spiritual in front of formation to say that all of those things aren't just changing the political choices we make or the relationships we have with our neighbors. All of those things are implicated in our spiritual life because our spiritual life has to do with not just kind of our internal disposition towards God, but also the way we treat our neighbors, the way we live in community with other people. And if all of that has to do with our spiritual life, then our spiritual formation includes those things like spiritual disciplines and worship, but it also includes all of those other repetitive things that we do in our lives. Hmm. So you just picked up on this um, idea that spiritual formation is something more than internal work. Um, And yet there is such a, especially within evangelicalism, such a strong sense of personal transformation in our personal relationship with Jesus and the ways that we're uh, changed. And this is what we talk about in our small groups of what's Jesus doing in my life? What's the spirit doing in my life? Uh, But you just said that there's something more than this internal work. There's kind of a pushing outward. And you've noted that in church history, uh, that spiritual disciplines, these can push Christians outwards to love and serve our neighbors and what, what are some examples of that? How does that actually get worked out? Yeah, one of my favorite examples I always use to kind of start talking to people about this is 
all of these things that I read really early in seminary about early Christian worship and a description that I read really early on of fasting, where they were describing not just depriving themselves physically of food or other resources, but that that was done on behalf of people in their community who were in need, that it was almost as if, yes, you do this for kind of your own spiritual betterment, but the occasion for doing it is actually realizing that someone in your community is in need. And so how can I deprive myself of something for their benefit so that that's both, you know, spiritually nourishing me spiritually and materially nourishing them and kind of not only doing this thing for me and God, but doing something for our community, that that strengthens the bonds that we have with each other. Um, Another example that I really love, Richard Mao talks about how baptism should have kind of a social implication for us. And he tells a story about a black man being baptized into the church that he was a part of and realizing that when someone enters that kind of community, that's not just a spiritual relationship I now have with someone else who's my brother or sister. That spiritual relationship puts material demands upon me. So he's writing this, you know, decades ago in the midst of civil rights and saying, suddenly we don't get to not care about that anymore, right? This person is a part of our community. The things that harm him harm us. The needs that he has are our needs. And so, yes, baptism is something happening that, you know, signifies this internal change in this one person. But it's also this person entering our community. And now we have obligations for them. They have obligations for us. They belong to us and we belong to them. And instead of thinking of that as just kind of like a nice idea, you know, we, we like the idea of unity or the idea of being a family, but that's not just something that we write down in our doctrinal statement or that we kind of, you know, preach on a Sunday morning. That's something where if that person has a need, then we have an obligation to meet it. And so how could that both have an internal change within an external result? And also sometimes even those kind of disciplines this is why kind of people struggle sometimes with spiritual disciplines because they think like I've done the same thing over and over again and I haven't felt anything, (laughs) you know, it hasn't done Mm -hmm. anything. But if I have this sense that it's both internal and external, then one, even if I'm not feeling any warm, fuzzy feelings, there's something good that's happening in my community. And it also gives me, I think, some more patience to kind of say, okay, could this be forming me and shaping me in such small ways that I don't even realize, you know, something like the discipline of hospitality, I have people from very different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different, you know, social economic statuses that come and and we share food together. It's not just me giving to them. It's them giving to me and building relationship. Maybe that doesn't seem to have, like, maybe that dinner's really awkward (laughs) and maybe like a dish breaks and it's really upsetting. And, you know, you don't know how to build a relationship. It seems really hard. You're not getting that warm, fuzzy internal feeling that that kind of discipline should give you. But maybe months down the road, you get an opportunity to serve someone who's different from you. And that small change that happened in you where you became more comfortable, you became more outward focused. Maybe you're in a voting booth, actually, and you have an opportunity to vote on something that could serve people who people in your neighborhood who you might not normally have a relationship with, but you started building that relationship at the table together. Maybe that changes the way you vote on something. And that change was small and incremental and over time. And it could be both internal and, but you might not feel that feeling at the moment, but also external in the way that it shapes your community, not just your church, but your larger community, especially the people who are marginalized or vulnerable people that you want to care for. You might not have that opportunity at the moment, but if you've been practicing those disciplines such that when the opportunity arises, you might realize I'm a different person than I was before I did those things. And now I'm able to serve in a way that I wouldn't have even known to serve before. It's a very powerful and practical description of the impact that these spiritual disciplines, you know, how they form us both as individuals, but particularly as you're describing with respect to community. And the example of hospitality that you've just used, um, it's 
it's a fresh example. We normally think of disciplines as the discipline of, of prayer, reading your Bible, or maybe even solitude. Yeah. Uh, but you just described hospitality uh, as a formative discipline. I'm curious what you do with liturgy. If you're expanding our imagination of what the disciplines are that form us, uh, are you doing the same thing with liturgy, expanding our imagination of what, what liturgy is? So how do you describe mm. liturgy? Yeah, very similar to, you know, spiritual formation, just those repeated embodied actions that impart a larger story. And the way that I tend to talk about it in the book, and then as I've talked about the book since I wrote it, is really a lot to do with media consumption, because people will want to know what do liturgies have to do with politics, (laughs) right? Like liturgies are like something you do in a church, forms you in some kind of way. They tend to think like smells and bells, that sort of thing. And especially if you're in a church that doesn't do that kind of thing, you'll probably think, oh, that's not for me. But one of the first things I tend to talk about is, do you have media consumption? consumption habits. Um, And a lot of us don't tend to think of those things as habits, but what are the sources you turn to? What are your habits of like, when you turn the TV on, when do you listen to the podcast? For myself, I realized I had gotten in a habit, especially at the beginning of COVID, where I would listen to, you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I had a a kind of smattering of of podcasts from different perspectives. And I started listening to them first thing in the morning. And I realized what a spiritually destructive habit this had become because in a really you know, scary uh, time in our nation's history, I was starting my morning, not with scripture, not with prayer, but with just a barrage of really sad, bad information. Mm-hmm. And so it was not just about the sources that I was getting my media from. It was also about the habits I was in, the time of day, the kind of orientation of my heart while I was listening to it. And so that's kind of an example of a liturgy that's not in the context we would normally think is like, how am I getting my political information or even my political participation, right? What are my habits about where I go in my neighborhood that might impact where I vote or, you know, the grocery store I go to, the school I go to? Those are kinds of things that function as liturgies because they're telling us those broader stories. And we might think we're just getting political information, right? Like I turn the podcast on, I, I flip the news channel on, it's just giving me information. But as many of us have become increasingly aware, right, there's there's broader stories underneath that information. It's telling us something about what to value, what is good and what is bad in the world, who will save us, you know, those kinds of really formative stories. And that's why they function as liturgies. That's what liturgies in the church are supposed to do, right? Inform us, you know, with information about what scripture says, but also draw our hearts to love a certain story about the world, our savior, what's good and what's bad, and kind of know how we fit into that story. And a lot of our media consumption habits are like that. Um, And there's things beyond that, that that I kind of use that word liturgy to to encapsulate, but media consumption is a good example of it. Hmm. So these are some of the unintentional consequences of the liturgy that we practice, and we don't even think of it as liturgy. Um, what are intentional things then that we can be doing? What, litur- what, what liturgy can we pursue in order to address this dynamic that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, one of the obvious ones would be, and this is why a lot of the book is really addressed towards people in ministry to kind of say, what can we be doing in our corporate time together? Because community is so important, because of the way that it shapes the way that we act as individuals, as well as the way we act as a community, what can we be doing to not just give people biblical information, right? Sometimes I think we look at political problems in the church and we go, let's do a sermon series (laughs) or let's do a Sunday school class, you know, and we'll give people the right information. Instead of asking like, are we telling a powerful enough story, an affective story that like draws people's hearts to love something different. And that doesn't mean like just like smoke machine or like, you know, kind of a cheesy thing where we try and get people's emotions involved. But it does mean that we 
you know, are passionate in the way that we read scripture and the story that we're telling. We think really critically about the songs that we're singing together because those words hum underneath the way we live our whole lives. They honestly, sadly for preachers, they stick with us a lot more than the sermons usually do. You know, how are we thinking through even just, you know, the corporate practices we have like communion? Am I, are we practicing that in a way that's communal or are we practicing that in a way that ends up kind of reinforcing a really individualistic idea of my relationship with the Lord? Um, so I really, to me, it starts with corporate worship, but it also starts with us just being a little more cognizant of the power of those liturgies. So, you know, as we have those media consumption habits, do we have things that kind of block us from just doing it uncritically? Do we have questions we ask ourselves about the things that we're listening to? Um, I just was reminded today of the fact that when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me and my sister around Christmas time, you know, when the ads are going for new toys that we might want, she would say, ask yourself, where's the lie? And I remember as a kid thinking that was so cheesy, right? Because what she meant was like, you know, Barbie can't really do the thing that the commercial shows Barbie doing. But now I think like what a good example of the kinds of questions we should ask when we're, we see a campaign ad on TV, where's the lie, you know, or when we're reading a, a news article that's pretty biased in one direction, how can we have the ability to ask not just is this true or is this false, but what story does this want me to believe in? You know, what is good and what's evil? Who are my people, right? Sometimes the ads that we watch, especially political ads, they put who's in and who's out of our community that we're supposed to care about. How do we find those kinds of things that are operating at a lower register than just information? And those can operate as a kind of liturgy, right? If we have a list of questions, I have a list of questions up next to where my computer is because that's when I tend to find news is on the internet or listening to podcasts. And it's just questions about who is this asking me to love? Who is this asking me to hate? What story is this asking me to buy into? And that's a kind of, you know, very similar to the places in church where we all say the same words together. That's a liturgy for me of making sure, checking my heart when I'm consuming media, because it's still going to try and pull my heart to love wrong things, but it doesn't mean we disengage. It just means we're more cognizant of how we're engaging. So what is the story that we should be immersed in? I mean, what is the gospel story in your theological imagination, in this spiritual mm. formation, in this liturgy that you're uh, seeking to inculcate us in? You've talked um, really well and compellingly about the forces that would misshape us. Um, what, are, what are some of the gospel themes or narratives or stories that, in, in your work that you, you would hold forth as kind of this positive shaping of who we are? Yeah. Someone asked me recently um, what one passage that might be unexpected I would go to to talk about politics. And I said, Genesis one and two, because we tend to start so much of our political conversations, our imagination, those kind of liturgies in just sin. And that's an important conversation for politics in our world. But could we start with this picture of creation made good by God? and human beings created to act as his representatives and to steward creation and to build communities. Could we get, you know, go back to that language of ruling and reigning as representatives of God and then seeing that paralleled in Revelation as a picture of creation redeemed and restored and our jobs being the same kinds of jobs, right? To steward, to, to rule and reign as God's representatives, to take the good gifts of his creation and make things with it, to be creative. Um, so that's where I tend to, that's one of the themes I tend to think about is, is human creativity, human community building as something that is, you know, our commission from the very beginning to the very end. 
And then another one is a, a theme that, you know, the churches that I grew up in, I am so thankful for, and yet it was really neglected in a lot of those churches is the kingdom of God and the way that it's described, especially in the new Testament, not just as Jesus coming on the scene and, you know, announcing the coming of the kingdom of God as this kind of ethereal spiritual thing. And we're not really sure what it means, but as him taking care of people, of restoring, redeeming, healing people, of announcing the fact that especially the marginalized and oppressed are going to be set free and taking some of those images from the prophets and from Jesus's ministry and saying, you know, those being able to apply those in our world today, we will have disagreements and there will be complicated things and it's not always black and white or easy to understand. And yet, at least in the traditions that I grew up in, a lot of that really powerful language for seeking flourishing in human communities was missing. And I want to, I, even in my own you know, ministry at the church have tried so hard to say, could we look at some of those things? And even before we get to like super interpretive questions of like how we apply this, could we just sit in the beauty of some of these descriptions of what God's intention for human communities are? Hmm. Now that's a very powerful uh, vision from creation through redemption. Um, and, uh, and yet it, it confronts some of the false narratives that exist in our yeah. country that are um, vying to, to shape us. Um, you, you've talked about in, in, in your work, um, false gospels uh, that the church can encounter. Um, give me a couple of examples of what might be a false gospel that we need to um, honestly name. Yeah. One of the ones I tend to start with because it's humming underneath the surface again, but once I say it, most people go, oh yes, that's totally something I've heard is the security gospel. The idea that God's ultimate kind of good for us, or even if we're not even talking about God, just our ultimate good as humans is to be secure, um, to be you know safe from things in the world. And so this has really kind of specific implications in our own lives, right? The way that we choose to, the schools we send our kids to, the neighborhoods we want to live in, you know, things like that. But it really broadens out to, to policy questions, right? Of like how to keep our country safe, how to keep our kind of people safe. Again, that's one of the questions politics is always trying to shape for us, who is our people and who are not. Um, and so recognizing in our own churches, the way that we tend to prioritize safety and security and physical safety and security is a good thing. Obviously God does not desire for us to just, you know, be reckless and to allow ourselves to be, you know, taken advantage of, but it's not the highest good, right? There are goods that are higher than our physical safety and security. And yet we tend to treat it as the highest good. Um, and so once we start seeing that, it's amazing how many people have read the book and come and told me later, I didn't even realize how many times in church we pray for that as if it's the ultimate thing or how many times we talk about, for example, missionaries, <laughs> we talk about that way kind of the good of maybe sharing the gospel with the good of security as if those two are equal goods and they're not, or even thinking about, you know, even if we're not going overseas, if that seems really romantic and great, but going across to kind of a dangerous neighborhood in our own city seems like, oh, that's probably not a good idea because it would be unsafe and recognizing that you know, Jesus's own family, right? And Mark uh, says to him like, okay, no, we need to pull you away from these crowds. They're dangerous for you. And yet his mission from the father is to, to heal people, to serve, to announce the coming kingdom of God. And yet we've really mixed it up <laughs> if we somehow are able to kind of meld our faith with this idea that our ultimate good is security. That is such a deeply underlying issue. It's, you know, it's not at the surface. And yet when yeah. you name it, you're like, ah, that makes sense of so many other phenomena uh, that's happening in our country. Um, so clearly you think about these issues, but you think about it from a certain perspective. You graduated from Liberty University in 2016. So I'm 
guessing that you're part of what we would call Gen Z. Um, what do you perceive as some differences in generational perspectives on all the things that you've talked about, whether it's formation or, or liturgy, whether it's mm -hmm. the roles that uh, the various gospel narratives, you know, stories of what really makes for good news yeah. vie. Do you sense that there are generational differences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the big ones when it comes to Christians, you know, faithful life in the world is that my generation is really concerned with justice. And so they get, you know, frustrated with older generations that care less about that or care about it when it comes to different issues than they do. And so I think that's going to be something for the church to continue to talk about where we say, like I said before, we have all of these incredible scriptural references to God's heart for justice. How do we make sure that people aren't leaving those behind in their concern for justice, that they don't think they have to go outside of the church to find really good resources for dealing with that? Um, and how do we kind of correct sometimes in our history when we haven't cared as much about that? Um, another thing I think younger people really care about there have been some studies that document how much more interested they are in liturgical traditions. And rather than just sort of saying, okay, well, here's some shifts. Let's also think about a lot of people, I think my age are hungry for some roots. They want to know that there is a tradition, there is a background to where they come from. And so even if we, you know, even if they stay in the denomination they're in or the church they're in, recognize that they might be hungry for not just liturgy for the sake of liturgy, not because it's cool or trendy, but because they're looking for something that reminds them that their faith is older than just when their church was founded, that there's something global and historic about their faith, because so many other things are shifting all the time, right? With social media, with political changes, it feels like there's not a lot that it's very stable or sturdy. And a lot of, you know, people, especially in the church, they've changed their mind about political stuff, about theological stuff. And so sometimes that can feel really unstable. I think we're missing out on an opportunity to keep people from leaving, thinking they have to go somewhere else by reminding them that this isn't some new fad. You know, the church that you go to may have been founded 30 years ago, but it's an inheritor of a tradition that is so much older. And that if you think there are problems in your 30 year old church, you know, that you might look at some per particular political problems. You might be frustrated with the fact that they aren't fighting for justice. The tradition is larger than that, that the church is global and historic and there are resources outside of just your own, you know, narrow tradition that you can learn from. I think if we were to harness that, that would be something that, that young people would especially be interested in. Hmm. So pushing now to this global as well as historic tradition you're referring to, in your book, uh, The Liturgy of Politics, you talk about St. Augustine's City of God uh, and the earthly city. How does that relates to the conversation we're having today. Yeah, I love, you know, his description of these two cities. A, a lot of people, when I first read uh, City of God, tend to just map the church and the world onto the earthly city and the heavenly city, right? There's the church and there's the world. And Augustine is really firm that that's not where the division is, right? He would say that both in the church and in the world, it's mixed, right? There are believers that we don't even know about yet. And there are unbelievers in the church. Both of those are kind of mixed together. And we have to work together with people from this other city while we're on earth. And one of the really beautiful things about his description is that, you know, I, I say in the book somewhere that he has written a letter to a public official. He's, he's actually dedicated the city of God to a public official, but in this other letter to a different one, he's talking about how this person's love for the heavenly city would make him a better official in the earthly city. 
um, that he connects our spiritual and our material lives and says that, yes, there is conflict. Like at the end, those two things are in, in complete conflict, right? You can't be both, you can't be part of both cities. One of them is oriented towards love of God and one is oriented towards love of self. But while you're sojourning on earth with both cities intermingling, your love of the heavenly city, your love of the kingdom of God, your love of the you know global historic community of faith can motivate you to be a better caretaker of the earth that we share with both cities, instead of seeing those as two completely different, right? I have religious obligations and I have political obligations, seeing those things as there will be times when they will bump up against each other, they will conflict. But if you're rightly orienting yourself so that your love of the heavenly city of the kingdom of God is higher, then it should motivate you to do more faithful work in the world instead of what a lot of people at the time and a lot of people now might think is disengaged, right? I love the, uh, the heavenly city. I love the kingdom of God. And so why even bother with the mucky world down here? And instead, Augustine, who's really pessimistic about political stuff, he doesn't think there's a lot we can do that will be really good or just. And yet even he would say that love of the heavenly city, if it's rightly oriented, if it takes top priority, it should motivate you to do faithful work in the world. So how do we bring all of this together? There are some uh, pastors, uh, even congregants that have opportunities to shape the way that their churches function. Some would wish to dive headlong into these issues of politics, theology, culture, formation. Others would wish to just walk away from it, disavow. It's too complicated, too hard. We're going to lose our congregation You've just described the situation in which um, younger Christians are yearning for discussions about justice, commitments about justice, and we're looking for guidance. So let's pull this together. What, what few pieces of advice would you give uh, for Christian leaders with respect to guiding their churches um, in these really murky, difficult issues during a very difficult time? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I don't give a lot of specific instructions in the book is because I'm young (laughs) and I don't want to tell anyone how to run their church. But, but the other reason truly was that I want people to be able to apply those things in their own context. And so the first thing I would say is just know your people really well and don't feel like the conversation that's happening nationally has to be the same conversation happening in your church. Too often, I think, you know, I'm in a seminary context. I'm with people who are sometimes pastoring now, sometimes going to pastor, but we're spending a lot of time together thinking about what it means in the abstract, you know, to lead in the church. And so a lot of that happens in conversations about national leaders. You know, what is this national denomination leader doing or saying? And sometimes it concerns me that we don't recognize enough that kind of implanting that national conversation into our own context doesn't always work, that we have to know what are the actual questions and concerns of the people among us. Like we might have to talk about conspiracy theories right now, but if my people aren't concerned with that, then I don't have to, you know, there's going to be conversations that make more sense in a specific context. Um, The other thing I would say is just recognizing that there are generational differences, and yet our goal is not to just satisfy both halves, but to bring them together. I've been in contexts where we've just sort of acted like it's just true that there's multiple churches in this church. There's the younger people, there's the older people. We've got our kind of little groups. Again, with the whole idea of the, the global and historic church, the beauty of that is that we're intergenerational. And so how do we find ways in your own context to have conversations amongst generations? You might find more commonality than you realize. I have been surprised consistently by people in my church that, you know, because of stereotypes I have, I would think, oh, they don't care about this thing or, oh, they don't know about what's happening, you know, in this part of the world. And I've been surprised consistently and they've been surprised, I think, of things that I care about. And so kind of finding ways to foster those intergenerational conversations. 
and also just being in your community more. Um, I know that there's been, you know, at least in my own past in the church, a lot of emphasis on global missions, and that can be really good. And I want to support people who are in missions overseas. And yet again, going back to the security gospel, we really want to support those people. And yet sometimes we are really nervous and skittish when it comes to being in places in our own communities that we might think of as dangerous or low income, things like that. And starting there has an opportunity to open a conversation about how to serve those people politically as well as personally. You know, if you don't have relationships with those people, you're not going to be able to have that conversation in your church about how, how maybe are our political priorities misplaced, right? If we don't have a name and a face to these abstract political ideas, I think we'll only just fight with each other about them instead of saying, well, you and I both care about this community in our larger community. How could we find ways to compromise when it comes to the way that we serve them? And how could we have productive conversations about the way that we're voting, the letters we're writing to our elected representatives, the way that we're practically being involved politically? Um, those conversations happen better when we have a shared love for the actual people in our community, not just abstract ideas of who they are. Caitlin, as we draw this conversation to a close, um, what gives you hope? What gives you hope for the local church uh, for the larger evangelical church in America in the years to come? You know, it's so funny. People ask me that a lot. <laughs> and it's and it's so funny because I think they expect someone my age who writes a lot about some of the problems that I see to be really pessimistic. And yet the thing that consistently gives me hope is one, the conversations that I have with people in my church all the time, people who their minds have been changed about things, right? There's actual possibility for people's minds to be changed about things that they've learned and they've grown and I've learned and grown from them. And so when I look really kind of nationally, that's when I get pessimistic. But when I think about the people I actually know in my church, the changes I've seen, the ways that they're serving in their communities, that gives me hope. And I think too many of us, again, look at the national situation and get really pessimistic. And it starts with you and your church, right? It doesn't just start with a big statement that we make or, you know, getting on social media and talking about something in a really abstract way, I think it really starts with recognizing that good God is doing good things in my specific community. And I want to draw on those to do greater things instead of just looking at the really big problems. Well, our guest on today's conversation has been Caitlin Chess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Caitlin. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals and sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.